Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Stephen Powell's written a book entitled The Book of Failures. It's got some unbelievable stuff in it. Like the time back in 1978 during the firemen's strike in England. You see, the British Army had taken over the emergency firefighting, and on January 14th, they were called to the home of an elderly lady to rescue her cat. They arrived with impressive haste, very cleverly and carefully rescued the cat and started to drive away. But the lady was so grateful, she invited the squad of heroes in for some tea. Driving off later with fond farewells and grateful waving of hands, they ran over her cat and killed it. I think Peter would have appreciated that story. Because he knew what it was like to do your absolute best and still be a dismal failure. I'm sure that we've all been there. So the question isn't really if we are going to fail. The question is what do we do after we fail? I'd like to begin with a fabulous bit of insight I read that will set the stage for this morning. This commentator wrote, The present passage finds the Lord in the custody of his enemies on trial for his life. But even in such seemingly degrading circumstances, John still managed to exalt him. The apostle did so by juxtaposing the accounts of the Lord's initial hearing before Annas and Peter's denials. Both scenes took place at the same time, and John, under the Spirit's inspiration, wove them into a dramatic narrative. The interplay of the two dramas brings into sharp focus opposite truths that are foundational to Christian doctrine, that being the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. Those truths are evident from the contrast between Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness, his courage and Peter's cowardice, his sacrificial love and Peter's self-preserving lies. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 12 with me. So the Roman cohort, the commander, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and brought him to Annas. First, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was in their best interest for one man to die on behalf of the people. We first read that they bound Jesus. To arrest Jesus, the soldiers undoubtedly followed Roman procedure by pulling his arms behind his back and then placing them in irons or either binding them with some rope. We may assume he also remained bound with a noose around his neck during this entire ordeal. This probably was the standard procedure when making an arrest, but it also suggests to us a deeper significance. Just as Isaac and the Old Testament sacrifices were bound to the altar, so also was the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. But make no mistake about it. It was not the chains or the ropes or the soldiers that bound Jesus. It was his love for us. Then Jesus was taken to the highest Jewish power in Israel, Annas. And although Caiaphas officially held the office of the high priest, many recognized his father-in-law, Annas, as the true authority in Jerusalem and the final voice in every matter concerning the temple. 
we are told that Jesus was brought to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. The problem is, we are told in Acts 4-6 that Annas was also the high priest. So, would the real high priest please stand up? Now, the reason for this use of the double reference is that according to Jewish law, the high priest held his office for life. But the Romans, under whose indulgence the Jewish system of government was allowed to function, would displace high priests who were not to their liking, and then they would put others in their place. Thus, at the time of Christ's arrest, there was Caiaphas, the Roman appointee, and Annas, the elder high priest, who would have been recognized as the true high priest by all the Jews. So although he no longer officially held office at this time, Annas was the most powerful figure in the Jewish hierarchy. And he was still called the high priest, in much the same way that former presidents of the United States are still called president even after they leave office. Now, history tells us that Annas was a proud, ambitious, and notoriously greedy man. Evidently, a significant source of his income came from the concessions from the temple. He received a share of the proceeds from the sale of animal sacrifices, and frequently those that were brought by the people would be rejected, and then they would be replaced by, from exorbitant prices by the ones that they would supply. Annas also profited from the fees of the money changers to exchange foreign currency into the Jewish money that could alone be used to pay the temple tax. It's been estimated by some historians that Annas was making $3 million a year in A.D. 33. That's not bad money today, unless you're a professional basketball player. But quite frankly, it was a racket aimed at taking advantage of those who had come to worship God with their sacrifices. I wonder, how does God feel about that? Well, we know that two different times Jesus made a whip and drove them from the temple. I would not want to be one of those guys who are on TV today who are doing the exact same thing to those who are gullible enough to follow them. So you can be sure that Annas had a special hatred for Jesus, who had twice disrupted his business operations by cleansing the temple. Now he has a chance to get even with this Nazarene. In John's mind in verse 14, the thing that marked out Caiaphas was his unconscious prophecy that Jesus would die for the sins of all the people. So here he refers to him by distinguishing him by referring back to that prophecy. His recall of those words may also be meant to indicate that Jesus might expect little from such a judge. Here was no idealist that was ready to see justice done, but a cynical politician who had already spoken in favor of Jesus' death. And although Caiaphas didn't realize it, he spoke profound truth. For one man must indeed die for the salvation of mankind. Verse 15, please. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. 
So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. The disciples scattered immediately after the arrest in the garden. However, we are told that Simon Peter was following Jesus along with another disciple as the soldiers had taken Jesus to the residence of Annas probably around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. The question that now arises is, who is this mystery disciple? Another disciple is introduced but not named. He is simply described as being known by the high priest. It has often been suggested that he was none other than John, the beloved disciple. Other names have been suggested, such as Joseph of Arimathea or maybe Nicodemus. And sure enough, such men would have been known to the high priest's house, and they could also have maybe have also known Peter. Now, personally, I think that it's John. Now, why would I think that? All through the Gospel of John, John never refers to himself by name. It's always the disciple whom Jesus loved or the disciple that leaned upon his breast. And so this would be another argument for it being John. Now, to be fair, one argument against this is the improbability that a son of a fisherman would be known to the high priest. But it must be remembered that John's father's fishing business was large enough for him to have hired servants working for him. And so it's entirely feasible that John often sold fresh fish to the high priest in his household who could certainly afford it as $3 million. That'll buy a lot of fish sticks. But all this is just conjecture. There's really no way of identifying him. But his acquaintance with the high priest was such that he was readily admitted into the courtyard, whereas Peter was not. Matthew's account here tells us that Peter followed from afar. I like Peter. Because although all but John had scattered, he continued to follow Jesus. But at the same time, I learned from Peter that if I follow Jesus from a distance, I'm going to get into trouble. It is true of many in our time, as can be easily observed, Many legitimately, honestly, truly try to follow Jesus, but they try to do it at a distance because they do not want to become too fanatical or lose touch with the world that surrounds them. Moreover, they think that they are safe at a distance, though they are actually in greater danger. Why would I say that? Because when Jesus calls a person to follow him, he calls him to follow in his footsteps, which means right behind him. Now, earlier, Peter had tried to fight a spiritual battle in the power of the flesh, and now he makes yet another mistake. He tries to follow the Lord at a distance. That also never works out very well. Now, to be fair, at least Peter did have the courage to follow the Lord but it still doesn't work. This morning, I can look past over the past 35 years and admit to you, there have been many times I have followed the Lord at a distance. What I mean is my devotion was half-hearted and lukewarm. I didn't want to go back into the world, 
but I also didn't want to give God total control over my life. And that put me into a real dilemma. I had too much worldliness to be happy in Christ, but I had too much of Christ to be happy in the world. Now, could I have stayed like that and still made it to heaven? Sure. Salvation is by grace and not of works. But I would have lived miserably in both worlds. It's like this. Picture yourself on a cruise ship. Which would you rather be? A stowaway hiding out of sight from everyone or an invited guest enjoying all the activities, food, and fun? Now, both of them are going to get to their final destination, but which one of those are going to have the more rewarding journey? In the same way, those who obediently follow Christ and receive Christ's invitation, trust in him with all their heart and grow closer to him, have the most rewarding and satisfying journey because they live in the shadow of the cross and in the light of God's grace. But many people are unwilling to are unwilling to live that kind of life. They would rather live an empty and unfulfilling life that are characterized by these lyrics of a country song by Joe Diffie. It goes, Prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Fill my boots up with sand, put a stiff drink in my hand, and prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. I would say to him, well, sir, the question isn't whether you're going to die. The question is what happens immediately after that. And sadly, I can't even ask him that question. For you see, on March 27, 2020, Diffie announced that he had tested positive for COVID. Two days later, on March 29th, he died in Nashville at 61 years old. From complications of that disease. I can only hope he made things right before the end. So falling at a distance is a bad choice in both arenas. But people will tell us we don't want to get too carried away in this Christian thing. We should emulate Peter, they say. You see, Peter was sharp. He kept his distance from Jesus. I'll stay close enough to see him, Peter reasoned, but not too close, or I may get caught. Good thinking, Peter. Don't get too involved. It might hurt. Don't be too loyal. You might get branded. Don't show too much concern. They might crucify you too. We need more men like Peter, men who keep religion in their place. That's the kind of man that God needs, one who knows how to keep his distance, now, I'll pay my dues, and I'll come once a week, but, well, you can get carried away, you know. Yes, you can get carried away, up a hill and to a cross and killed. So Peter learned a lesson that day, a very hard lesson. It is better to never have followed Jesus than to have followed him and denied him. Mark these words this morning. Follow at a distance you will eventually deny the master. Verse 17. And the slave woman who was a doorkeeper said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. 
Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. We now come to Peter's first denial. The thing is, Peter wasn't being tortured with someone trying to get him to deny the Lord. He wasn't being stretched out on a rack or having the thumb screws applied. No. The big burly fisherman is only confronted with a slave woman and all of his previous bravado begins to crumble. Remember earlier, Peter even rebuked Jesus for talking about going to the cross. Can't you imagine that scene? Peter takes Jesus aside and whispers, Look, Lord, I don't want to embarrass you in front of the guys, but you've got to stop all this negative talk or these guys are going to get discouraged. I didn't become the Pope for us to lose. But now standing in front of a slave girl, his descent into denial occurred with such rapidity, his head must have been spinning. Her question in the Greek incidentally implies that the answer will be no, as in, surely you aren't one of the disciples of this man too, are you, is the force of it. And Peter went along with this by saying, I am not. The question suggested a line of escape, and Peter gratefully took it. Almost certainly, he did not reflect where it would lead him. And we will see, once committed, he must have found it very hard to go back on this initial denial. Now we have a little detail here about the circumstances. It was evidently a cold night and the slaves and the officers of the high priest had made a charcoal fire in the courtyard. They were standing around it warming themselves, and now Peter joins them. Uh-oh, Peter. Not only are you now following at a distance, but now you're warming yourself at the fires of the enemy. The tragic story of Peter's multiple denials is a warning to all who would claim self-confidently that they would follow Jesus no matter where he would lead them. Boasting of our abilities in our flesh is an invitation to failure. And really, in a bitter irony, Peter, like Judas a little while earlier in Gethsemane, wound up also standing with the enemies of Jesus. It was a bad place to be. And Peter certainly paid the price of being there, as Spurgeon writes. Peter was on dangerous ground. When his master was being buffeted, he was trying to make himself comfortable. We read of the high priest servants that they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. He stood with them, and they were rough servants of ill masters. He was in bad company, and he was a man who could not afford to be in bad company. For he was so impulsive and so easily provoked to rash actions. Now for some application. When you feel cold, where do you go to get warm? Do you go to that bottle or that website or that Netflix series? If you go to the world when you're confused, hurting, or lonely, you're going to get burned. Just ask Peter. And why do we do it? 
No doubt because often we are still too fond of this world and too enamored of its company. Matthew Henry once wrote, Those that warm themselves with evildoers grow cold towards good people and good things. And those that are fond of the devil's fireside are in danger of the devil's fire. As you watch Peter, you see him gradually moving into that place of temptation and sin. And his actions actually parallel the description of Psalm 1-1. First, Peter walked in the counsel of the ungodly when he followed Jesus and went to the high priest's courtyard. Peter should have followed the counsel of Jesus and gotten out of there in a hurry. Then Peter stood with the enemy by the fire. And before long, in Luke 22, we are told that he actually sat down with the enemy. It was now too late. And within a short time, he would deny his Lord three times. The point is, if Peter can fail, then anyone can fall. The strongest as well as the weakest. In fact, it may be the strongest who are even in the greater danger. As Barclay says, the tremendous thing about Peter was that his failure was a failure that could only happen to a man of superlative courage. True, Peter failed, but he failed in a situation in which none of the other disciples even dared to face. He failed not because he was a coward, but because he was a brave man. So what happened? How did such an obvious brave man who truly did love Jesus fail so miserably? Well, the answer is going to sound simplistic, but then again, the truth often is. Why did Peter fail? Peter failed to pray. However, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord did not fail to pray. Well, this seems like a strange reversal, doesn't it? If we were to pick someone who, in our opinion, did not need to pray, it would obviously be the Lord. But if we were to pick someone who really needed prayer, it would be Peter. Yet Peter is sleeping in the garden while his Lord is pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father. Please listen to me. I can tell you from experience, following the Lord in the power of the flesh without prayer is truly a recipe for one disaster after another. Why? Because Satan is most likely to attack us when we are least prepared to repel his charge. Did not Jesus say earlier, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you as wheat? You may be thinking, that sounds great, Pastor Bill. But unfortunately, my life resembles Peter way more than Jesus. So now what? You may be thinking, as some do, I understand clearly what you're teaching. I know this is the kind of discipleship that Christ calls for, but in my case, it's too late. I am like Peter. I know I should have followed Christ wholeheartedly. I know I should have stayed near to him, but I have followed him at a distance. I have denied him. I have compromised my faith a hundred times and more. Now, I can never truly ever be a disciple of Christ. 
If you are thinking along those lines, let me assure you that it is never too late. With God, it's never too late. Now, it is true that our sin can bring consequences, and those consequences may be so terrible that they remain for us for a lifetime. But in the matter of discipleship, God always begins with you where you are right now. You may have denied Jesus once. You may have denied him a hundred times. It makes no difference in the sense that Jesus comes to you this morning with a new call of discipleship. He says, follow me now from here. And then he sets a new way before you. Our God is not the God of the second chance, as I am sure I blew my second chance the same day I got saved. Our God is not the God of a second chance. He is the God of another chance. Now, verse 19, just for a couple observations. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple area where all the Jews congregate, and I said nothing in secret. Why are you asking me? Ask those who heard what I spoke to them. Look, these people know what I said. But when he said this, one of the officers who was standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I want you to notice in the Bible the list that we are given of the people who plotted and eventually succeeded in killing the Lord. It wasn't neo-Nazi skinheads, members of the Church of Satan, or even the ACLU. It was the Pharisees the chief priests, and even the high priest, who in our day would be the clergy. It was the scribes who would be likened today to our leading Bible scholars and the elders of the people. In other words, the deacons and the Sunday school teachers. While on earth, Jesus was often accused of being a friend of sinners. I ask you, who could blame him when his biggest enemy was in large part the religious crowd of that day? So now the high priest is going to interrogate, interrogate Jesus. Now, in this trial, it was not legal. For Jewish law provided safeguards for the accused. First of all, he was not ever called upon to incriminate himself. And the case had to be established by eyewitnesses. It was the responsibility of Jesus' accusers to bring forth their witnesses. It was not his responsibility to demonstrate his innocence. John reports him as saying, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. Why question me? Question those who heard me. They know what I said. This, may, this is not an evasive answer, though it may sound so to us. It was merely a demand to be tried properly. And what happens? One of the officers of the court says, is that how you answer the high priest? And then he strikes Jesus. High priest, high smeast. This is the ultimate high priest you are hitting. Not only that, brutality was not even permitted in the courtroom. Yet one of the guards steps up and strikes him. Yet, Jesus maintains perfect composure 
and then just responded with a reasonable request. He said, in effect, if my objection should be overruled, then state the legal precedent. But if it should be sustained, I should not be punished for being right. Eventually, Jesus is going to say, you're sitting in judgment over me right now. But in the future, I'm going to be sitting in judgment over you. And if you don't accept who I am now, you're going to find out who I am later. Well, at that moment, pandemonium just erupted in the courtroom. But the majesty and dignity of Jesus shines through, even in this degrading situation. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Proverbs. It says that a gentle tongue breaks a bone. That's what Jesus is doing here. He just gently speaks the truth and then just lets the power of that truth just sort of lie there. We should be like that. Instead of getting angry and blowing our top the same way that the world does, if we would just but speak a gentle word and then just walk away, that is as hard to ignore as a compound fracture. As we finish up this morning, we have seen Peter's first failure, but what about all the other disciples? I wonder where they were. Did they go home thinking it was all over? Did they stick around lurking in the shadows, hoping that no one would recognize them? Did they hang out at the temple or maybe find a safe place to watch from a distance? Other than Peter, we really don't know. But there is one thing that we do know. They all came back. Slowly but surely, they're all going to return to that upper room. Peter, Andrew, Thomas, Thaddeus, Nathaniel, they all returned. Now, I'm sure they were all embarrassed. They were certainly racked with guilt and grief. I know they all must have felt foolish, but they returned to the last place where they had met with their master. Maybe it was the rumor of the resurrection. Maybe after three years, they didn't know where else to go. But I suspect, really, it was their commitment. Their commitment to the Savior wouldn't allow them to stay away. They were too convicted to go home, but too confused to go on. And the same thing is true of us this morning. We too can have the assurance that no matter how vile our actions or bitter our betrayal, Jesus tells us in John 6 that anyone who comes to him, he will never drive away. So this morning, if you like Peter are still falling at a distance or maybe not following at all, please don't leave here until you talk to someone because there is nothing more important. Let us pray. You are the majestic Savior. You are the Lamb of God. You are everything we couldn't be so we can be what you are. Let that truth penetrate our hearts this morning, O oh Lord. Allow us to see who we are in you. Draw us to you, Father. Make us witnesses to this world. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. Let us shine, as your word says, as lights in the universe. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be taking communion together. I ask Pastor John to come up. Please come up and get the elements and take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together.